welcome to the Royal Institution Science Podcast. This week, Steve Jones takes us through the remarkable scientific advances made during the French Revolution and their influences on modern science. Steve Jones, of course, is known for many, many things, but one thing he's not been known for previously is for writing histories of revolutionary France. So I was intrigued when I found out that he'd written this book, and I'm sure you were too. Um, I'm glad to have been able to take a, a preview of it. And I guess it's no surprise that in here we find stories about naturalists like Buffon and Cuvier and Lamarck but we also find all kinds of stuff that you might not expect, uh, like the history of chips, by which I mean French fries, um, or a discussion of doping in sports, or a discussion of the Coriolis force in meteorology. So it's, they're, they're, it's a treasure trove. Um, and that's to say that it's not just a book about science in the age and in the world of the likes of Lavoisier and Laplace, but is, and I think probably like all of Steve's books, is also about the here and now. It's about us. Um, now, in the unlikely event that you haven't uh, much idea of what Steve is, is known for, he, he is, uh, used to be the head of, he said, thank God he's not anymore, the head of the Department of Genetics, Evolution and, Env and Environment at UCL. Um, he is, I think, the, the thing I should uh, mention most uh, significantly in this location is that he was the 1996 winner of the Royal Society's Michael Faraday Prize for, the, uh, uh, for, for furthering the public understanding of science. And I think what I appreciate always about uh, Steve's writing is that he, I think he's one of the most eloquent advocates of science without being what I'd call an evangelist. Um, you can rely on him to be cautious, to be measured, uh, even sceptical of some of the claims that, are that you sometimes hear coming from science and from genetics and medicine in particular. So I think he's a very reliable guide to anything, and I'm sure he'll be a very reliable guide to the history of science in the age of the guillotine. So please welcome Steve Jones. Um, th thanks for that. I, I, I should also point out that I'm one of the uh, world's top six experts on the genetics of snails, uh, and the other five agree. Um, um, okay, good. So this is the cover of my book and the title, No Need for Geniuses. Now, um, what you see is a, a bunch of what are, in fact, French scientists sitting on the top of a pillar and being thrown to the mob below them. And if you look carefully, you'll see various scientific instruments being hurled into the air. You see a balloon on the top right there. You'll see um, surveying instruments uh, um, and various books. And the, the mob is baying after the scientists. Okay. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about, the interaction between science and politics in the time of the French Revolution which is much, much closer than, it, than I realised when I first had the idea of writing the books. The way they overlapped, um, the way in which uh, the revolution in many ways was fomented by scientists almost as in, in, in pursuit of a scientific agenda of politics, and the terrible price, in, death included, that many of them paid as a result of becoming involved. And um, as we heard, I'll try and bring some of the science of these people slightly up to date. Now, why do I call it no need for geniuses? I think the pivotal figure in this talk, and in some ways the pivotal figure of that period, was this gentleman here, who I'm sure you've heard of, who was Lavoisier. Okay? And Lavoisier, needless to say, 
was effectively to chemistry what Newton was to physics. He was the founder of modern chemistry. And I'll talk a, rather a lot, a little more about what he actually found. But uh, he, before he became famous as a scientist, he was involved in politics. And he was particularly um, involved in, uh, in, in politics attacks and became very unpopular as a result. And in the terror, the great terror, which started in 1793, uh, the revolution being in 1789, when Robespierre and Marat both of whom, as we'll learn in a moment, had some scientific ties themselves, when they, they set up the tribunal and dragged people before the tribunal for various real and imagined crimes against the revolution, um, the tribunal almost invariably condemned people to death and almost invariably they were executed the same day. Well, Lavoisier was condemned to death um, and uh, uh, somebody very bravely from the body of the court shouted, you cannot kill that man, he is a genius. And the judge said, the revolution has no need for geniuses. Okay, So that's the title, and that's like many revolutions, I suppose. Um, now, you know, the, the French Revolution in some ways was a triumph, but in other ways, of course, particularly for those like Lavoisier who paid such a price, and the many, many tens of thousands who were killed in, in civil wars and battles that followed it, it was a tragedy. Now, in fact, the French Revolution was un which happened at a time when Paris was the world center of science in a way that no other city has ever been or ever will be in the, fu in the future. Uh, something like half of all the world's major scientists were working in and around, or in Paris, it's a very centralized country, at that time. Uh, people like, if you've heard, Lavoisier, Laplace, Buffon, um, Ampère, um, many, many of them. I'll talk a little bit about some of them, but I'll mainly talk about our friend, uh, Mr. Mr. Lavoisier. Now, the, um, the revolution, as I said, was strongly influenced by scientists. And many scientists felt that there were rules of uh, society which could be understood in just the same way as the rules of astronomy might be. And that, in fact, that these rules of society made it more or less inevitable that there would be a great social change. Now, and they were very much involved in, the, in pursuing that change. Now, you, you will remember, of course, that in 1789, um, there were attempts by Louis, Louis XVI, there were some attempts to generate a new political system. The political system clearly wasn't working at all. Uh, there were three estates. There were the church, the aristocracy, and then everybody else, the third estate. Now we've got the fourth estate, which is the press, but they didn't have it then, uh, the third estate. And the three groups, um, a, few, a few thousand in one, a few hundred in the other, and many millions in the third group, everybody else, they had equal weight of <coughs> discussion. So the church and the aristocracy could always beat the, uh, the uh, wishes of the majority. And there had been famines, there had been riots, <coughs> and there were attempts to do something about this. Not they, could, they couldn't get anything done. And finally, in, uh, in, um, in, uh, in <coughs> at the end of this process, there was a meeting where they went round and round in circles and, and a group split off from this enormous assembly who were discussing what should be done. They split off and they went to the Jeu de Pomme, the tennis court, the famous tennis court. And they swore what's known as the tennis court oath. And the tennis court oath was the statement that the revolution was going to take over. Okay. Um, there was a time when they thought they might be able to keep the king as a rather British kind of way, as a figurehead, but that didn't happen. And that gentleman in the middle there, you can see with his white hair holding up his, uh, his hand, that was an astronomer called Bailly. And uh, Bailly uh, is the man who led the tennis court uh, revolt 
took a great mass of ordinary people, and many of whom themselves were scientists and, uh, and physicians and engineers, took them into this building, the tennis court, which is still there, as you the poem, um, and de declared that a new government was going to be in place. And he was, uh, that ha happened. He was then elected the first mayor of Paris, um, and he became mayor of Paris and was actually quite effective, although he still had his interest in astronomy. Unfortunately, quite soon, rioting broke out, and Bailly ordered troops to put down the rioting, and um, he shot a number of, of, the, of the rioters, who then dragged Bailly, dragged him on to the Champ de Mar, Mar where the uh, Eiffel Tower now stands, and put him one of the first victims of the guillotine. So he came to a sticky end. But Bailly was one of the many scientists who saw these laws of society as being scientific. And here are some of the statements which many of them made, politics as science. There's Lamarck, there is an urge to improve in life. That's what Lamarck, Lamarck is known for the inheritance of acquired characters, but everybody believed that at the time. Um, <clears throat> what he really beloved, felt that, that animals wanted to get better, and the humans wanted to get better, and they could do this through politics. De Tracy, who's less well known as a physiologist, invented a word, ideology. He made it up. The, uh, the scientific study of politics and ideas. Ideology is part of zoology. Condorcet was a great mathematician and philosopher who was, uh, who was, uh, he, was he was imprisoned and murdered, almost certainly poisoned. Um, the laws that direct the universe are necessary and constant. Why should this be any less true? For those are the intellectual and moral faculties of man. And then finally, Bailly, we just heard what happened to him. The universal language of science will open the golden age. Well, what, what uh, Condorcet did, um, did an enormous number of things. And in fact, he founded the fr modern French educational system. Um, he generated this system of uh, rather rigid curricula, which is still there in France. And in particular, he insisted that every French 17-year-old, when they do the baccalaureate at the back, which almost everybody does, has to study philosophy. So if you're doing engineering, you study philosophy. If you're doing, uh, if you're doing, uh, if you're doing Chinese, you study philosophy. If you're doing genetics or biology, you study philosophy. And if you don't pass your philosophy exam, you can get multiple A's and everything else. You will not get your baccalaureate. Okay. So this is big. I think this is one of the major problems in French society, to be frank. Everybody has done philosophy, my God. Um, okay. Um, and that's still there today. This is one of Condorcet's statements, which I'll look at in more detail in a moment. The claim that any human group is of its essence less or more, blessed with particular abilities, is an attempt to make nature an accomplice of political inequality. Now, that's a noble statement. We're all the same. That's the ultimate democratic statement. And I want to explore that statement a little bit further um, in the context of the, of the events of that time. As I say, he was arrested and killed in prison. Um, this is the... Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the question in the philosophy exam last year. Torture by philosophy. Dogmatic beliefs are more or less numerous, are born in different ways, change shape and target. Uh, we can never say there are no dogmatic beliefs. Discuss. I challenge you to give that to any British 17-year-old, or to be frank, any British 40-year-old, and make, get them to make any sense of it at all. Every Frenchman can do it, okay, and woman can do it, okay, or so they claim. <laughs> all right, so that's, that was the background of the uh, French Revolution. It was a scientific revolution, planned and in part carried out by scientists. Now, that was 1789, and then 1889, there was <coughs> a scheme 
to, uh, to, to celebrate the, the revolution. Um, and uh, there was a competition as to how they would do it. And they wanted to build something. And there were several, many entries, one of which, which didn't win, fortunately, was to build a 300-meter-tall model of a guillotine. And they, they didn't do that. But famously, of course, what they did was build this building here, the tallest building in the world for 40 years, okay, built in 1889, um, and it's, uh, here it is being struck by lightning. Now, it was, of course, uh, was, of course uh, designed and built by a young engineer who then wasn't well known, Gustav Eiffel. And Eiffel was an engineering genius. He'd already built a number of railway bridges on a radical new plan, which involved the bridge being made very likely of wrought iron, not of steel or cast iron. So instead of having huge, huge beams which kept the wind at bay, he, they were open bridges which allowed the wind to blow through. And he built the, uh, the Eiffel Tower 300 meters high uh, on the same principle. There were 18,000 wrought iron girders. And the figures are quite remarkable. Um, the, it's extraordinarily light. If you take the weight of the air inside the shape of the Eiffel Tower, it weighs more than the Eiffel Tower. Okay, if you were, the Eiffel Tower, the base is 125 meters square, and if you were to melt all the iron in the Eiffel Tower and pour it into the base, how deep would it be? As deep as this room, maybe? Nope, it would be six centimeters deep. Okay, so it's an engineering marvel, but he only had a 20-year lease on the site. Um, it was very unpopular at first. Uh, pe people in Paris hated it because you could see it everywhere. And there were various uh, rather bad poems written about it. Uh, the uh, French um, novelist Guy de Maupassant claimed at least to eat lunch in the Eiffel Tower every day because that was the only place he couldn't see it, okay? Um, um, uh, which is a good story, it may not be true. But of course now it's the icon of Paris, the icon of, of France, and it's just celebrated its 250th paying 250 millionth paying visitor, so it was a big success. But when it was built, it only had a 20-year lease. But uh, Eiffel had a plan, which uh, he put into place, that it would be an observatory and a laboratory such as science, as it never had, that has its disposal. And he was right. He himself did some very remarkable experiments. This is a picture of his drop test experiment. He had a big wire, 300 meters long from the top of the tower, and down it he dropped uh, metal plates of shape, very shape and size, and measured how fast they accelerated and, 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 and so on. It was the beginning of the study of aerodynamics, and that was his interest in life. In fact, he designed the world's first working wind tunnel which was in, in the base of the Eiffel Tower and was actually used to design the very first biplane wings. Okay, so that certainly was a great success. Um, he, uh, he, the, the Eiffel Tower had the first, uh, made the first radio broadcast it was ever. Uh, it was from the top of the Eiffel Tower to another antenna in Paris. And in 1914, that saved Paris because in 1914, when the Germans invaded, after the French very rashly had invaded Germany, um, the Germans invaded... Um, and uh, uh, the Eiffel Tower's antenna picked up a message from the Germans that they were advancing towards Paris. And just in time, they managed to put troops into these taxis and took them to the Valley of the Marne, the Battle of the Marne, the first great battle of the First World War, and stopped them. I assume they, they, they tipped the taxis handsomely. Um, um, so that's, a, that's a, something else which was done very scientifically. But there are many more things that we can see from the Eiffel Tower. And in the beginning of the, the start of the book gives a sort of tour of Paris based on its scientific sites. And if you stand on the topmost gallery of the Eiffel Tower, which is almost 300 metres high, you can see this marvellous panorama of Paris, and you can point 
places where really fundamental bits of scientific research were done. For example, there's, if you look to the north, you see the hill of Montmartre, where there's that rather unpleasant cathedral up there now. Um, and uh, that's where the speed of light was first measured. Somebody took, a guy called Fizzo, took a beam, a bright beam of light um, from his laboratory in Paris, shone it towards the mountain of Montmartre, where there was a mirror, and he came zooming back to his, back to his laboratory. Uh, he had a cogged wheel, which span, and he uh, interrupted the, the, the returning light, passed through this cog, and he caused the wheel to speed up until suddenly the returning light was blocked. And because he knew how fast the wheel was spinning, and he knew how far it had gone, many kilometers, he could use that to work out the speed of light. And he was accurate to within half a percent of the modern value of the speed of light. So the speed of light was first measured in Paris. Uh, a rather less uh, an unrelated phenomenon, but has to do with the origin of the, of the potato chip, um, has to do with... Um, with these flowers here, if you go to the Luxembourg Gardens, just on the other side of the Seine, now you'll see these beautiful flowers. Had you gone in 1789, there would have been just a single flower there with a purple <laughs> plant, and that's actually a potato plant. And the revolution uh, was actually marked the origin, the beginning of the use of potatoes as human food in France. They hadn't been used at all previously um, because, uh, well, the, the church didn't like them because they weren't mentioned in the Bible. And they're not mentioned in the Bible, of course, because they're South American plants originally. Um, they have this rather uh, devilish habit of growing underground. And there are various other strange things about them that were believed about them. There's a line in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, which is long baffled Shakespearean scholars. Um, Falstaff, that enormous clown-like fat figure, he believes in the Merry Wives of Windsor, quite wrongly, that he's, be, he's persuaded two women to join him in bed. So he does, he, and then he's congratulated himself on this, and he says something very strange. He raises his eyes, to, his eyes to the heavens, and he says, let the sky rain potatoes. And Shakespearean scholars have written dreams about this. What is he talking about? Right? The sky rain potatoes. They were actually thought to be aphrodisiacs, right? Uh, I have to tell you, I've eaten lots of potatoes um, uh, without much of an obvious effect, I have to tell you. Um, but they were brought into Paris by a guy called Parmentier, um, who did indeed uh, bring the potato into France. So that's something else that happened at just that time. The, also, the meter, the, me the measurement of distance, that was the first act of the revolutionary, uh, of the revolutionary um, authorities was to say we need a proper measure of weights and measures. There were dozens of weights and measures. Um, very, very confusing. People, uh, merchants would buy with one set of weight, some weights and measures from the farmers and sell with their own set of weights and measures and, of course, make a nice cut as a result. So they decided to have an objective means of doing it and they carried out the first ever survey of a nation. Uh, by triangulation. You all know what that is. You set up a series of triangles across the landscape uh, and you, 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 you make a survey. And the reason they did that was to define the meter in a very French way to be one ten billionth of the distance from the North Pole um, to the equator on the meridian measured through Paris. Now, whether that makes any sense, I don't know, but they certainly did succeed in... They certainly did, did succeed in, um, in, 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 in mapping Paris, mapping France in a way which had never been done before. Now, we all know who founded the theory of evolution. Uh, if you go to Paris, you'll find out who it is, the Fondateur, 
the fondateur de la doctrine d'évolution was, in fact, uh, was in fact Lamarck, okay, not Darwin. Uh, so the French believe, and Darwin himself, in the origin of species, admits that Lamarck was the first person to have the idea that animals and plants could change. So evolution started in Paris. And around the edges of the Eiffel Tower, there are the names of 72 scientists of that time. Okay? They're people you'll have heard of, people like Laplace, like, like uh, Cuvier, like Ampère, and some of you are less familiar with Chevreul, who was a, who was a chemist, uh, but famously Lavoisier. And Lavoisier is a sort of pivotal figure here. So that's what I'm going to talk about, is chemistry's... Lavoisier, both as a scientist and as a politician. There's Lavoisier and his wife in the laboratory. It's the most beautiful painting. It's in the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Now, it's said to be the most perfect painting of glass in the, ever made. And his wife, who was much younger than Lavoisier and was very beautiful, um, she played a large part in Lavoisier's experiments. Um, she, uh, she, as you'll see in a moment, she was quite a major player in both chemistry and physiology. Well, that's the usual image of Lavoisier, but here's the, the image which the French people had of Lavoisier because he was a tax farmer. <clears throat> and what a tax farmer was, um, was somebody who uh, buys the right to collect taxes from the French state. Okay? And <clears throat> the tax farmers, there are 24 of them, paid a large sums of money to, uh, to the French state in order to collect taxes. And the agreement was that they had to collect a billion euros or francs or livres in taxes from the French state. And if they could get any more, they could keep it. Now, that's called tax farming. It's regarded as an entirely iniquitous system, but, of course, we do exactly that now. Uh, they call private finance initiatives, okay? Um, you, somebody says, I will build you this hospital for £10 million, and they build you the hospital for £10 million. Then you pay £40 every time you change a light bulb for the next 20 years, and that person then becomes a multimillionaire as a result. Exactly the same system. But uh, the French, being rather, more, le rather less passive politically than the British, um, they got very annoyed about that, and there's Lavoisier being carried to collect his taxes, and you can see <coughs> he's being, he's being, uh, he's being uh, condemned as being a fat aristocrat. Um, and uh, uh, he was particularly unpopular because he had one means of collecting taxes which led directly to the events of 1789. One of the taxes was on all the material that came into Paris. All the basics of life, things like candles and, 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 and wine and food, everything, had to pay this tax that was called the octroi. Okay? And it's a bit like VAT, actually. It, the tax was actually rather small, but they were on life's essentials. And, of course, the poor, therefore, had to pay a much higher proportion of their income in tax than the rich. And there was a wall that, kept the, uh, that allegedly uh, kept... Uh, uh, made people pay, but it was a very leaky wall. Uh, it was actually, many, quite in many places, was just a terrace of houses, so somebody could bring in uh, a barrel of wine through the back door of their house, take it out through the front door uh, into the closed area and not pay any taxes. Well, Lavoisier didn't like that at all. So he had built, uh, in 1784, a wall around the centre of Paris, which is the dotted line here, the wall of the farmer's general, the Ascent de Femme Généraux. And there's a bit of it still left, and you can see it was quite an impressive-looking wall. Okay? And in the wall, there were a number of, of points where you, could, uh, you had to pay your taxes, only, only two of which remain. And that caused fury. And on the 14th of July, sorry, the 13th of July, 1789, the French mob stormed the wall. And they burned down. Um, the wall burned most of the collection points down. And uh, that really was the start of the French Revolution. 
It was an attack on a chemist and a physicist, a, a, a scientist who had become immensely rich through his political activities. There's the wall being burned down. And the next day, of course, on the following day, it was the turn of the Bastille and the Quatorze Juillet. Um, only four people were released from the Bastille, one of which was the Mar whom was the Marquis de Sade, who had been imprisoned for sexual excess on the demand of his family. Um, <laughs> but they, they don't point that out very much on the 14th of July in France. Um, and... Uh, off, off he went. Okay, so what? Let's, so that was Lavoisier as a politician, and that what led to, in the end, to his death. What about Lavoisier as a scientist? Well, it's hard to re realize what a mess chemistry was in before Lavoisier. This is from a chemical textbook of the early 18th century. It's a, it's a description of an experiment. The grey wolf devours the king after which it is burned on a pyre, consuming the wolf and restoring the king to life. Well, I did A-level chemistry. I think I probably just about understood as much of what I was doing as, as the people who did that. What they were doing were extracting gold. Gold is extracted by skimming, skimming off salts of other metals generated by antimony sulfide, which is the grey wolf, and roasting the mixture. And this all came... This ability to describe things in rational terms came absolutely from Lavoisier. Okay? Um, and what Lavoisier realised was that chemistry was a science of quantities and real, real substances, not mystical essays, not mystical um, things like phlogiston, and not strange things like grey wolves. They were, chemistry was built on a series of what he called simple substances, things that couldn't be broken down further, things like carbon, oxygen, gold, iron, and so on, what we now call elements. And he realised these things could combine with each other but they combined with each other according to strict rules and quite often as they combined or broke apart energy was generated or it needed energy to do the job um, now the whole art of making experiments in chemistry is found that we must always suppose an exact equality or equation between the principles of the body examined and those of the products of its, of its analysis. Sounds a bit obscure, but it means that everything makes sense. It all fits together. There are rules of chemistry which are as rigid and simple as the rules which Newton had set forth in physics. Now, he tested this in many ways. This is one of his uh, better-known experiments. What he did was to take a huge double burning glass, which is an enormous thing with two lenses, uh, with the sun streaming through it, and put it outside the Louvre with all the grand ladies parading past. And he took a diamond and he put it at the focus point of the, uh, of the beam, where it was intensely hot, and within minutes the diamond disappeared, causing a great scurrying alarm among the grand ladies, of course, who rushed off home with their own diamonds. Now, that was, mis that was mysterious, but of course he knew exactly what was happening. What you had got was a diamond, okay, um, carbon, Okay, crystalline carbon, uh, and oxygen, and that's an oxygen mask in a plane where the oxygen levels have gone down, and that they join together to form a gas, which is carbon dioxide. Okay? So that's as simple as that. But you need something to do that, make that happen. If you just leave a diamond there, it won't do it spontaneously. It needs an input of energy. However, carbon in other forms does it the other way, because carbon in other forms, for example, this molecule on the right, which is a molecule found in which it makes a large part of coal, lots of double bonds, as they say, um, if, uh, if, you, if you combine carbon of that kind with oxygen, you generate heat, and you have a nice coal fire. Okay? But it all fits together. All these sums add up in the end. Now, Lavoisier is well known for that. He's perhaps less well known for being the founder, not just of chemistry, but also of physiology. Because Lavoisier realized that, the hum that life is just a chemical experiment. It follows the same rules as does a burning fire, 
or a, a disappearing um, diamond. And he set out to measure it. And here we have Lavoisier's famous, um, famous um, um, respiration experiment, where you've got somebody sitting in a chair, his name was Segar, um, uh, with a mask over his face. He's breathing in a measured quantity of oxygen, and he's breathing out carbon dioxide, um, so he's burning, effectively. And uh, Madame and Lavoisier is measuring the equation between those two. Um, now, not only is he burning, but he's like a coal fire, he's generating heat, and Lavoisier invented a calorimeter, he was the first, and he put a guinea pig in the calorimeter, the first person to use a guinea pig in biology, hence the guinea pig word, and he measured how much oxygen and carbon dioxide were being used and, and, uh, and uh, pushed out, and how much heat was being measured, and it all added up. When Sagan was asked to do, run on a kind of bicycle kind of machine that lifted up heavy weights, he used more oxygen, more and made more carbon dioxide and generated more heat, and it was a simple chemical experiment. So he realized that actually that, that life was chemistry, and this is a book he published in the year of the revolution where he basically says the animal machine has three types of regulator. Respiration consumes oxygen and carbon and furnishes heat. Digestion replenishes that, which is lost in the lungs, and transpiration, transpiration is sweat and the the uh, heat lost in your, in your breath, um, which carries away the heat. So it's simple, okay? It's not, of course, as simple as that, but it's it is, in fact, remarkably simple. Now, we know an awful lot more about metabolism now, and that's what I'm going to end my talk talking about, is Lavoisier and metabolism, um, and what we know about it now, and how it actually goes back in some ways, to the revolution. Humans are strange animals, it turns out. It's a paper in last week's Nature. It's a bit old now, last week's Nature. Um, this is a paper in last week's Nature where people measured the totally, total energy expenditure, um, heat-generated energy used, of chimpanzees, homo, sorry, chimpanzees, homo, humans, homo, chimpanzees, pan, gorillas, and orangutans. And this is a log scale, the energy expenditure on the vertical axis and body mass in the right, on the, on the horizontal axis. And actually, we are the most energetic of all primates, okay? We are the Porsches of primates. We've got a very, very powerful machine that makes us go. And in fact, our metabolic rate, weight for weight, is at about 25% more that of the chimpanzee and more than twice that of the orangutan. So we're really big, powerful metabolic machines. So much so that in order to get fuel from the world outside, we have to, uh, we have to use an external stomach because we're the only animal that cannot stay alive on raw food alone. If you were to eat raw food alone, you would not generate enough energy to stay alive. You would starve to death. You could eat as much as you like. So we've got this external digestive organ, a deep fat fire in Glasgow, a microwave in Hampstead, um, um, and which does the digestion for you. Now, if you're driving a Porsche, you're using lots of fuel, so you want a big fuel tank. You don't want to run out. And we've got big fuel tanks, and the big fuel tank holds the reserves of fuel, which is known as fat, okay? Um, take it from me, you will never meet a fat chimpanzee. If you go to the London Zoo, as I have, and you pick up a chimpanzee child baby, it's rather a frightening experience, they're very powerful, they don't get fat. And that's because their metabolic isn't, metabolism isn't arranged to make fat. We make fat, all, all of us, as a reserve um, in case our fuel begins to run out. But of course, when there's too much food out there, that can be a problem.
And we are now in the midst of an epidemic of obesity, which is going to be the major health problem, is the major health problem of the 21st century. It's much worse than the smoking epidemic. Uh, and we're in the middle of it, and I can illustrate that with some figures from the United States, which are really rather shocking. 1985, okay. So 31 years ago, most states had fewer than one person in 10 who was morbidly obese. By 1990, most places, most had more than one in 10. By 1995, we're getting to most of, them have, most of them having more than one in eight. By 2000, one in six, most states. By 2005, one in four, many states. By 2010, one in three, and if we go back to 2050, in Mississippi, 35% of adults are morbidly obese. In Alabama, 36%, and so on. So it's a huge, huge problem. And in France, as in Britain, as in the United States, we live in a unique period of history where the rich are thin and the poor are fat. So what's that due to? Partly, of course, it's due to... Um, it's due to uh, to, it's, 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 it's due to uh, the, the epidemic of, of cheap food. Uh, but it's Lavoisier's equation. If you put, take in too much food and you don't have enough energy expenditure, you will use the, use the excess food to make fat. Um, and if you get fat, you will get diabetes, which is type 2 diabetes. And in the southern states now, the commonest illness among late teenagers is type 2 adult onset diabetes. And that's a shocking statement because it'll take 20 or 30 years before they die, which they will, um, and uh, it'll be very, very expensive. They go blind, they lose limbs, I mean, it's just a nightmare. And the, the, best, the best predictor of type 2 diabetes and of getting it is very simple, your waist size. But my, I, I will let you into a deep personal secret. I take a size 32-inch waist, okay? Uh, so I'm thin, uh, relatively speaking, as a male. If I was to put 8 inches on my waist size to make it a size 41, or, or uh, 9 inches, uh, my risk of type 2 diabetes would go up by 14 times. For women, the risk would go up by 35 times. So the effect is big. So naturally, there's a lot of interest in the biology of obesity. Why do people get fat? Partly because food has got cheaper. The cost of food in terms of hours worked from the 1930s to 2010 in the States. And of course, it's dropped dramatically in price. And the food that really has got cheaper is junk food, soft drinks and sugar. Healthy food has actually got more expensive. So you could say it's environmental. But it's, it's more than environmental because it runs in families. Here we have a family in which it runs, two rather large parents and a noticeably large child. Uh, you might argue that this is proof that this is genetic. Um, well, on the other hand, here's a picture of their cat, okay? <laughs> and it's one of the little known facts of modern biology that fat people have fat cats and fat dogs and fat goldfish, and they don't, as far as I know, share any genes with their cat. However, there is genetic variation behind obesity. This is a particular gene, genetic variant in humans. About, it, it comes in three flavors. Um, about one-third of the people in this room have got two copies of a particular uh, DNA-based T at a point in this rather big gene. I've got two copies of T, as it happens. About another third have got two copies of the DNA letter A in the same place, and the rest of us have got one of each. If you're TT, you're, liable, you're likely to weigh three or to four kilograms less than somebody who's AA, because AA people need more, they, they don't feel satiated until they've eaten a lot more than TT people. So it's genetic. So and we now know 
That it's only a problem, of course, where there's lots of food around. If there was no food around, it would make no difference at all whether you were TT or AA. But it certainly um, is important in that context. And we now know lots more. And these are, this is a paper in Nature last year, which shows a number of different genes with their risk alleles. And if you've got lots and lots of alleles variants that predispose you to being obese, then you're much more likely in the American food environment to become obese as a result. Okay. So that's the genetics of obesity within the populations. But, uh, so, and we'll come back to that in a minute. What about the other side of the equation? Not somebody who's eating too much and not doing enough, um, not doing enough uh, exercise. What happens to, Le to Lavoisier's uh, figures if you do the opposite? You do the maximum amount of exercise which it's possible to do. And I think that the Tour de France is really an example of that. People are driving themselves to and beyond the limits of human endurance. There's the Tour de France, the, the end of the Tour de France in 2015. And if you measure the energy expenditure, apart from on the two rest days, you'll see that the energy expenditure for a Tour de France rider, rider is about six times greater than that of somebody working in an office. So they're pushing themselves to the limit. And therefore, they're taking in huge amounts of food, and they're generating vast quantities of heat. And it's the heat, actually, which limits the amount of speed at which they can go. And the Tour de France, very typically for France, actually began as a political statement. It began in 1903 with the famous, the notorious case of Dreyfus. Dreyfus was a, a Jewish officer in the French army who was accused of treason, quite wrongly, there's no evidence at all that he'd done it, uh, of selling secrets to the Germans. And he was dragged before the court, he was, uh, his sword was broken, his buttons were snipped off, and he was sent to De Devil's Island. And this led to a huge row for many years in France. People who were pro-Dreyfus, who were, generally speaking, liberals, anti-Dreyfusard, who were anti-Semitic and um, right-wingers, and this split French society for several years. And one of the odd side effects of it was the Tour de France, because there had existed a, a, um, a, a magazine called Le Velo, the, the Bicycle, and it had advertisers, and it was quite successful. Cycling was popular at this time, the turn of the 20th century. Um, and one of the advertisers, and the editor was a, a pro-Dreyfusard. One of the advertisers was a virulent anti-Semite and anti-Dreyfusard, and he pulled in all his advertising out of the magazine and found that his own magazine called The Auto. Okay? And he had a scheme to uh, publicize it, which would be a bicycle race around France. And this was the first one, 1903. Uh, the first stage was from Paris to Lyon non-stop, which is a long way. Um, and uh, it took the, the rider, the riders, the winner, 18 hours of non-stop cycling to do it. From the very beginning, people began to cheat. This is somebody in an early cheat. He looks the part. Um, he was found with a train ticket in his pocket. Dear me. <laughs> Um, he, and he took the train from, from one of the stages. Um, he had many successors, the most notorious of whom is this, Lance Armstrong, and the Tour de France basically, for almost its entire history, was an uncontrolled experiment in pharmacology. People, people were drugging themselves with all kinds of drugs, and just to remind ourselves, they used morphine, for example, to fight off the pain, and they used strychnine, both of whom we discovered in Paris in the revolutionary times. There's the man in the Iron Mask, in, uh, in Lavoisier's experiment, Sagan, he isolated the first to isolate morphine, and rather later, somebody else isolated strychnine, which was used as a muscle tonic in the Tour de France. And now there are all kinds of, um, of cheats in the Tour de France. 
So let's end up now talking about the fate of these scientists. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting to me the way you can move back and forth to the revolution, uh, from the revolution to the present day. There's Sylvain Bailly, who was executed. Condorcet, who was murdered in prison. Um, there's uh, de Dietrich, guillotined, the first person to perform the Marseillaise in public. Uh, one of them argued against the death penalty for Louis XV. He was guillotined, his wife was guillotined, his Children and his grandchildren were guillotined, um, and there are more and more of them here, okay? There was he himself at the top. So most of them paid an enormous price, but this is France, um, and they have the Vicar of Bray in France, as they do in Britain, and after the revolution, many of them came back, and uh, they became once again involved in politics. Um, some of them became, one of them became prime minister, one of them became um, the minister of war under, under Napoleon, one of them became minister of the interior, several of them became senators. Okay. Now it's interesting really how really, how much that happened in France and how it didn't happen in Britain. Uh, there are no scientists in the House of Commons now at all. Now famously there has been one, needless to say, here she is, um, posing for an election leaflet in 1951, pretending to do an experiment. She didn't finish her PhD. <laughs> um, but here she's... <laughs> she, did, she did write one scientific paper, uh, Margaret Roberts, as she then was, The Saponification of Alpha Monasterian in a Monolair, 1951. Saponification is using powerful alkalis on, uh, on, on oils to make soft soap. Okay, which is a very appropriate thing, really, I suppose, for, uh, for any politician uh, to, be, to do. So why didn't that happen? It certainly didn't happen. And I think the reason we, we can learn a lesson from the French experience, that science and politics are different things. I don't think there's any scientist in Britain um, who thinks that their scientific knowledge and their scientific insight allows them to make uniquely qualified political statements. But there was one, and that was, of course, Mrs. Thatcher. Um, but uh, it simply hasn't happened. And I think that's because we have a different culture. Because here in Britain, scientists have never been part, really, of public life. Probably are more now than they used to be. And that view is summarised by a great predecessor of uh, Margaret Thatcher, who I think basically got it right. Scientists should be on tap and not on top. <laughs> and as a, scientist, as a scientist, I can only say thank God for that. I, and I will stop there. Thank you. I don't want to go on for too long, and I want you to have the, every opportunity to purchase the books that are piled up outside. Um, but uh, we have time for one or two questions, if you, if you would like to ask them. Yes, Just we, 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 we Just certainly should. Um, before we do that, actually, Steve, I think we shouldn't miss the opportunity to say what happened to Madame Lavoisier here in the RI, because... As you'll know, I don't even know. I don't know what happened to Madame Lavoisier. She, after uh, Antoine was executed, yes. she left France, came to England, married uh, Count Rumford, yeah, who yeah. helped found the RI. Oh, so there you go. It was a you go. The marriage was a great failure, I have to tell you. Um, yeah, <laughs> they, they, they split apart. Um, yes. So there, so much for the RI. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yes, I, I, I should have known that, I think. One thing that strikes me um, about the comparison you made between France and England at that time is that um, France, by that stage, had a long history of state sport for science. Exactly. The uh, French Academy of, of Sciences had, was set up as a, a government-funded exactly body, right. whereas the Royal Society, at the same time, wasn't. And, you know, at, at, there, are, there, there are many examples around that time of uh, 
the French government supporting industry, exactly supporting right. innovation around the start of the 19th century, which again, you know, in, in Britain come. we had, we were kind of, yeah. you know, making yeah. do. But, but and, and so did you see any influence of those oh, different yeah, enormously. approaches? But, to you know, the, the enormous difference between the Academy Royal, the Royal Academy of Sciences in, Fran in, in France set up by Louis XIV um, and the Royal Society here was that the Royal Society was a gentleman's club, a private gentleman's club, uh, which you could only, you could have to be a genius to join it, but you had to pay quite substantial fees once you joined the damn thing. As I say to some bitterness, you still bloody well do. Um, um, but uh, so it was a gentleman's club. The Royal Academy in Paris, um, Colbert was behind the idea. Colbert realised, the great economist Colbert, realised that they needed science, they needed technology. So the Royal Academy was set up with a large grant and a home in the Louvre, in the Louvre huge amount, large salaries paid to scientists, and the scientists were, they were asked to do useful things, and many of them did. Um, uh, many of them generated new technologies, uh, making, making bleach and the like. And that was a big, big difference. So it was a funded... Uh, uh, episode in France at the time when it was a private, it was a private hobby in Britain. Uh, no, there were some great British scientists. That's wrong, but the that's true. But the irony is that in the 19th century, that in France that fossilised the system because people tended to become technologists. Séguin, for example, became a multi-millionaire because he developed a method, a new method for tanning skins, making leather. Um, and pure science was kind of given up because they all went off and became open factories and so on. So in the end, you need pure science. Well, what you really need is a balance of the two, and that's what we didn't have in. Uh, early days of the Royal Society, and what we're beginning not to have now, with the demand always that if you have put in a grant application, you have to show what the, out the economic outcome is likely to be. I, in fact, I guess the, a lot of people would argue that the idea of pure science and the pure scientific laboratory began not in France or in England, but in Germany. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, another question. One, one more. One, um, lady there. The, yes, the, at the end of the row. Can I take you back to revolutionary Paris and um, revolutionary France and ask you if you came across any women, other women besides Madame Le, um, Lavoisier? But and also, <laughs> of the when you were doing your research, were there any scientists that you came across that surprised you that you hadn't heard of before? And dozens of them. <laughs> and which one? Which one was the most surprising? Well, there was there was uh, there was Madame Lavoisier. Uh, there was also what was her name? I've forgotten the name. There was an engine. There was a there was a she was a woman. I wouldn't remember her name. Um, <laughs> She was a, a, a self-taught 18th century mathematician and engineer who did the mathematics that allowed the Eiffel Tower to be built. She worked out the, the stresses and strains on those architectural structures, which much later, Gustave Eiffel. Was um, Germain? Uh, what was her name? Sophie Germain. Sophie Germain, that yes. was her name. Sophie Germain. Um, but interestingly enough, Laplace, who was a great astronomer, wrote a book of, to me, totally impenetrable. No doubt you read it. Before you go to sleep every night, on, celest <laughs> on celestial mechanics. And it's famously a difficult mathematical book. He's got a phrase which he uses again and again to say, It is easy to show, show that. And mathematicians say, How the hell did he do that? Um, you know, they spend hours trying to work out. But the woman who translated that book into English was a woman called Mary Somerville, okay, Somerville College, Oxford. And she translated it into English and could do all the mathematics and, and actually. Um, Laplace himself said there were only f five people in the world who understood his work, and only one of them was English, and she was a woman, um, <laughs> and that was Mary Somerville. Okay, so there were a few, but uh, obviously there were social issues that it was not easy, to, not easy for them to do it. 
Steve, we must let you go in a minute. There's one thing I've just, it's just occurred to me we really must ask you about before we finish, and that is the guillotine itself. The guillotine, um, yeah. it's, it's often portrayed as a scientific, a rational invention for improving the efficiency of execution. Uh, so is, was, is the, was the guillotine really a product of the French Enlightenment? Well, it wasn't. There was a, there was a thing called the, the Halifax gibbet in the, the north of England, where they used to, uh, where they used to, uh, it was basically the same idea. It was a beheading machine, mm-hmm. um, so but it was rather a primitive one. Um, but they were they were really vile in France. They used to, in some parts of the country, they used to boil murderers to death. Okay, uh, and um, they they delighted in torturing people. Uh, in the in the, before the revolution, there was a scheme for a more rational mechanism of execution, which was going to be a gas chamber. Uh, you had a big tent you put the unfortunate prisoner and you lit a sulphur fire underneath the tent. Um, and there was a, a big glass window in the tent so people could watch and have a good time watching him die. Um, and it was, it was Guillotin himself, uh, after whom the guillotine is named, he insisted that there had to be a more humane way of doing it. And he said, if you had not known that you were about to die, you would feel nothing more than a breath of wind upon your neck. And he's probably right. Um, he was furious when it became called the guillotine. And his, fam- his family changed his- their name as a result. But, I, but uh, and it, the machine was designed by the Academy of Surgery to be as efficient and as quick as in the right angle of, of cut and so on as, as possible. I once, for a different reason, went to the um, anatomy museum in Paris and there's a closed section, which I was in, where they keep the heads, plastic, plastic casts of the heads of people who've been guillotined. And there are probably 150 of them up there. And you look at them, and they all share the same expression, which is intense, um, intense irritation. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we really must stop there and let you sign some books, which are available outside. Thank you very much, Steve Jones. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, Professor Anne Ferguson-Smith explains how the environment affects our genes through epigenetics.